Welcome, welcome listeners. Come drink and linger if you get ink on your fingers. That's right, scribes and scribblers. We're back once again with the Nib Section, official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. I'm here with well-known hosts from our extensive catalog now. Uh, generous benefactor and consummate collector, Sharon. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Uh, hobbyist extraordinaire, Brian Saputro. Welcome Hello. again. Fearless leader, Diana Die, back again. Hello. And myself, Chucks Montano. I'm not Spike Lee, but I do the right thing. Nailed it. Um, for today's episode, guys, what are we writing with? Let's start with uh, Diana. Diana, what are you writing with? I have one of my daily writers. It's a Pilot 743, I think. It's a custom heritage, so it's a cigar-shaped Pilot in a burgundy color. It's got a fantastic um, 14K nib, a size 15 14K nib in a fine and it's my daily writer of choice it's my daily nib of choice as well the pilot fine i think it's good on most paper types including really dodgy copier paper but it's also good in um, leuchtturm which people have feathering issues with when they use a really wet broad nib but i think it's it's perfectly manageable with a pilot fine nib Okay. Sharon, what are you writing with today? So I'm bringing back a favourite. and I'm bringing back the Sailor Pro Gear Rialo in Precious Aquamarine. I think I last brought this to the Christmas gifts episode where I taunted Max with it. Mm, mm. And that's the only reason why I that remember that I brought this one here. And there is no Max to taunt this time. No, I must have gone my episodes round wrong. That's right. He's going to listen to this episode and he'll know that we're taunting him. Yep, so this one is a Sailor Piston Filler, great nib. It's my everyday writer at the moment, and I keep it clipped in my Hobonichi every day at work. Okay. Do people at work comment on the fact that you're using this glittery blue pen? Actually, I had one of my work colleagues come up to me and say, your pen is so pretty. <laughs> and then she tried using it and wrote, hello, everyone, on multiple sheets of paper all over the office. Wendy, I'm looking at you. What about you, Brian? What are you hello, my name is in with... That's not, a, that's not a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name. Riding with Sailor Marquier Cup with a 21K Cross Concord nib from... Cross Concord? Yes. Oh, interesting. It's interesting. the opposite of Cross Nagidasa. There you go. Today, I've brought in uh, Lamy 2000, the Macrolon, with a double broad nib. The reasons for which will become apparent later in the episode. This is a pen that I originally had with a Pendleton Brown BLS grind. I think when I first started getting into fountain pens, I think it was like maybe the third that I'd, that I'd gotten. Uh, and I didn't care for it. And I've come back to it now and I don't know if I write a different way or if I've, I just, uh, I like this nib more, but I am a massive, massive fan of this pen. Nope. Wait, so it's a, it's a BB that you've had ground to? No, so the I originally had one that was oh. a BLS grind, and then I was like, eh, this is nice, but it's not for me, and the I moved BB. it on. The BB is nice. It's quite stuck. It is. It's, it's very nice, mm. uh, and I have uh, come back to it and decided that, no, this I am a fan. Their nib is amazing, but the body is very, again, slippy yeah. slippy. Yeah, so originally it was the section that turned me off, and I don't know, I, like, I genuinely don't know what it is anymore, but whatever it, whatever it was doesn't bother me so now it feels very comfortable in my hand i don't know if i just write more easy than than i used to but uh, I've, I've come back to it and i'm a fan on on that note that's a little taste of what we are going to get into today we're going to softly and serenely turn our minds inward and uh, discuss the question of self-worth of uh, self-love and care and uh, i'm reading this wrong we're discussing the issues of fountain pen worth before we get into that uh, I believe we have some feedback for one of our previous episodes. Sharon is going to deliver. Sharon. Yep, and this review comes from Pens at All on Instagram. And it was in relation to our Japan episode saying, thanks for hosting the podcast this week. It was my first time listening and your part on waiting in Itoya, missing the Nakayas after the salespeople went to search for them, cracked me up. Much love from Canada. Thanks a lot, Pens at all, um, and hope you stick around for future episodes. Great. We love hearing feedback from you guys. Positive, negative, we, we like getting you, you guys engaged. 
This is going to be a pretty subjective episode, guys. I think there's going to be a lot of hot takes, but um, basically what we value, what we hold in a high regard for a fountain pen. Let's start off with uh, an easy question. Is it worth spending money on a fountain pen? That's that's going to be our softball question to open the day up with. Um, are fountain pens in general worth it when you consider things like waste reduction, value over time, writing? How do they stack up against your uh, kilometricos? What are, what are the advantages that you found? I don't think uh, it's going to be a massive revelation to anyone here that, uh, you know, we find the sensation of writing with it a lot better. But I'll let Diana or Brian over on that side of the table field this Brian, one to begin with. You take this one, Brian. Uh, Okay. In short, yes. <laughs> well, I didn't realize how much fountain pen is um, great to write with until fountain pens are banned in my office three months ago. So um, I had to revert to ballpoints, and that was tedious. Now I have gone back to fountain pens, but with permanent ink. So hopefully they'll let it slip. Why, why are they banned? Um, because my ink smear. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I used to use all sorts of inks, all colors, so I suppose I was looking for it, that <laughs> banning issue. But especially with those sheening inks, that's why I have... Um, you used Emerald Shavor at work? No, not, not shimmer, but sheening. So yeah. all of those last year's flavor. And the ones that don't dry properly? Yes. It's not just don't dry because they're so viscous, they will never dry. Mm. So everyone who's reviewing my work would accidentally smear it with their sweaty hands and then they can't read it and annoys the heck out of them. I like that you threw, threw in sweaty hands there to yeah, make it their, their fault, fault, not yours. It is. Of course it is their fault. When is it ever my fault? Um, They're in a lab environment. They should be doing their paperwork with gloves on. Yes, exactly. I use ballpoints for like two weeks and then I don't know if it's just in my head or it's actually real. My wrist hurt a bit. So you, you can write softly with a ballpoint. But you just can't There's see. There's no definition. You can't yes, see it exactly. at all. You can write with a gentle touch, but it's impossible. Uh, you, you can rollerball. Uh, that's banned as well. So it's not roller just fountain pens. It's um, uh, liquid ink. So what is ballpoint ink if it's not liquid? You can pencil. get gel ink. Still banned. It's liquidish. Like it will smear when you touch them when it's wet or something or rather. I'd rather use a pencil. What, what do you do? Point. What do you do for work? What's pencil your... is not permanent, so there's that issue. What's your I work environment? Stem cell research. Okay, right. So things has to last. So lab environment. Mm. Okay. Well, what about you, Di? Are they worth it? Fountain pens in general. I would say most people's writing could probably benefit from using a fountain pen, and I think they're infinitely more enjoyable to write with, even if you take out the, the side benefits. You know the different inks that you can get into and the different types of pens. You know, even the most basic, like a Pilot Kukuno or even a Jin Hao, I think I would prefer to use that over a ballpoint. That said, I, I'm not against, you know, a rollable or things like that. Yeah. So um, th this really is a softball issue because I don't think any of us are disputing the fact that fountain pens at their, at their entry point are worth the money. Oh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not yeah, a fence sitter. Exactly. Like. <laughs> <laughs> We're not selling ourselves out here. Actually, Kakunos, they are my only friend currently at work. The only ones that I dare to use uh, permanent inks in and spray ethanol on <laughs> in the lab. So they are my best friend right now. What, what about you, Sharon? <laughs> Sharon, um... So uh, unlike everyone else, I actually really like a good ballpoint pen and I keep quite a few around. I keep one in my bag every single day. I find writing with ballpoint pens where you have a thick stack of paper underneath, I find that sensation to be very, very enjoyable. However, I'm not on here to talk about ballpoint pens. Please escort yourself out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before well, they... in the next room we have ballpoint pens, Oceania. Oh, yeah. okay. so. I'll walk myself out, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. So are fountain pens in general worth it? I would say yes at the entry level. I think you can get a really good pen such as what Brian mentioned, a Kakuno, that does amazing things in terms of writing experience, being able to have a different writing style and being able to experiment with different inks. But on a twist on this particular oh, question. sturdiness as well, because I think someone has put them into the washing machine before, hmm. a Kakuno. Oh, I did. And it came <laughs> out riding fine. I mean, I don't think there was any ink leakage at all. It went through a quick wash cycle 
and it came out perfectly. Almost as wow. if it was encased yeah. in some kind of cocoon. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Actually, I have a cocoon that is encased in a cocoon. Yeah. You have oh, talked about yes. this one yes. before. A special yes. Brian made. It's a special one that Brian actually yeah. made. Isn't it this year's um, special edition cocoon? Rumor has it. <laughs> <laughs> Sharon, you're the one who suggested this topic. Yes. How do you define worth? Because when I was looking at it, um, I think of it in terms of what's the value proposition of first of all, using fountain pens, mm. and also to take it to, to the next stage where it gets a bit more controversial and subjective, what is the value proposition of buying a specific pen? You know, when people start questioning, is it really worth spending $500 on a fountain pen? You know, those types of questions. Mm. Is that what you had in mind? Absolutely. So I see a lot of questions on a lot of the forums and Facebook pages where people say, recommend me the best pen below X dollars or recommend me a pen between 100 to 200 dollars or what's the best pen you can get less than 500 a, a lot of which was i think the premise of our christmas episode yeah yep. exactly um when i was reading through a lot of these particular questions you would get ranges of responses from everyone who would say well you know you have to go find your own you have to discover yourself you have to discover what you like and you have to discover what is what is meaningful to you for you to decide a pen. I'm in that particular camp, actually. Mm. Um, whereas An Ollivander's will... situation. Pardon? An Ollivander's situation. An Ollivander's situation, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The pen will choose... Wait, is it you choose the pen? The pen? No, the, the pen. one I will think, choose I you. I think the one chooses you. The one chooses you. Yeah. No, it's not... It's but not... he has to wait for you to pick it first. Yeah, it's yeah. not a, this is my pen, there are many like it, but this one is mine situation. <laughs> <laughs> Where... So that's one um, aspect of it. The other type of response that you would often see is that people who are absolutely convinced that if you're going to be spending $40 on a pen, you're going to have to get a Twisby Eco, otherwise GTFO, right? It is un un like undoubtedly the best pen that you can or get. Or get four Kakunos. We'll get four cocoons. I'm He's in the like, four cocoons camp. GTF, GTFK, everybody. <laughs> GTFK. Get the four cocoons. Um, <laughs> and so it, I think you see a lot of heated debates about this. Whether, you know, whether one person can attribute so much value or so much worthiness to a particular pen because for them it means the absolute world, whereas other people just go, Ugh. I really hate the Kakuno. If you hate how your Kakuno, dare how you. dare you? But <laughs> well, it's yeah. it's it's funny because Diana, you were you were talking about a value proposition before, and so if you value a sort of economic grade pen for the purposes of minimizing waste and you know only using that pen, the the idea is that you're you're choosing that because it allows you to move on with your life and you're not complicating it with other things. <laughs> So for you to then get mad at other people for using other pens isn't really a simplification of your life. So if you're telling other people only this one and getting mad on the internet, your life isn't that simplified. I think that we, all of us, uh, in the panel in the room have workhorses and we have pens that we love for whatever verbose reasons that we're going to come up with, but they're not reasons of utility or logic. There's a whole slew, and I definitely have... There's two pens I keep only at work, and I don't even count them in my roster now, because they only stay at work next to the jar, and I never want to bring them home, because they've probably got VRE and MRSA on them, but... I know the feels. I have a Safari and a Prera that I keep at work, and they only ever go into my locker and onto my collar, and that's it. And those are my equivalent workhorses. So I, I started with a Safari for the purposes of waste reduction and impressing an artsy girl, but mostly waste reduction. So in terms of value over time, that was the, the starting off point. But I, I would argue that I've kept with it more for the sensation of writing than anything else. And that for me is a very nebulous, like I can't throw a number on what I'm willing to pay for that. Like, cause that comes at different stages. Uh, I've shown that I'm perfectly ready and willing to buy an Akaya in terms of beauty and writing experience, but I will also get that from a much cheaper pen as well. Cheap and expensive is very fluid. Yeah. There's almost like landmarks that you hit when you're buying fountain pens. There's at some point where you're like, I'm only going to have one over $100. 
and that rapidly outpaces itself, and particularly with the people in the room, I think. But, you know, so much of this is going to be subjective, and I don't think that that's too surprising to say that we're going to have very different opinions of what we're going to be paying a lot for. Okay, I- I'm glad that you were saying that the, the issue of worth is probably very subjective, because I tend to be of the opinion that things have inherent value, And that is related to things like the materials or the amount of labour that went into a thing. So I think that things have a a rightful price below which or above which you should not be able to charge for it. And that's that's like a very, it's a normative judgement about what a price should be, right? And I think that's very different to what worth is. Worth is something that we apply to a product or a thing. Yeah. So if... In individual if attribution, attribution of value versus the social... Uh, versus or an intrinsic value yeah, yeah. that the thing has. Yeah. So, for example, to go back to Nakaya, because we are all quite familiar with them, and they're one of the brands of pens that we hear this question of, is it worth it, applied to quite often. And I think it's a good benchmark for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think if you're looking at a Nakaya a certain amount of time and effort and craftsmanship and materials went into it. So I don't think it's fair to price a Nakaya at $50, right? But at the same time, certain people would not buy a Nakaya, even for $50, because mm. they would, would not value it that much. So, you, so worth yeah. is, it's only worth it if, if you're willing to pay for that. Yeah. So these intrinsic value things that you're, you're talking about, if you're talking about uh, the intrinsic value of labor in terms of like uh, an abstract, no. that's that's difficult to that's difficult to argue with. But if you're talking about the value of that labor to an odd consumer, that's very subjective. You know, so like handmade versus non-handmade to a consumer may not matter at all. But to uh, those of us in the room, I think it would matter a lot. Well, I uh, don't necessarily think so. Well, like, like, I think you could definitely make the definition of, like, what you're willing to pay for handmade versus what you're willing to pay for... To, to an extent, yeah. but a lot of it is not necessarily driven by labour hours, which I think is where you're going. Yeah. Um, I'll take... I'll, I'll take a Sailor, as an example, for instance, they release uh, so many limited editions, special editions, um, and it's their scarcity that is contributing to the value. Um, probably not their intrinsic value, but at least it's a fair market value. And the thing that people have to decide is that, okay, if I'm weighing all of the man hours, the materials, the uh, uniqueness, okay, I get a pen that's worth probably about 100 bucks. And then I'm going to slap on a premium because there's the sailor name and then the fact that it's only available from this one shop in a run of 50, for instance. Mm. And then then you're increasing that particular value by, say, another 100%. So you're getting a $100 pen that's all of a sudden $300 and then you slap on a particular region exclusive (laughs) tag to it, then jack it up a little bit more. So you get to a sailor that's worth $400. And it writes the same as every other sailor that you can get for, say, like 150 That's a but, brilliant marketing scheme. <laughs> but at the end of the day, if I'm looking on that website and I see a new sailor in a new colour that is in a translucent um, or sparkly <laughs> resin, I go to myself, ooh, do I need that? Oh, it's $600. Is that worth it? Hmm. Right? It's more around whether my emotions get so <laughs> caught up in the entire experience that I would be willing to pay a irrational premium for this particular item. And I attribute some personal worth to this particular pen that you know helps me justify and helps me sleep at night. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of people that will take issue with that and think that they don't shop differently based on their emotions. But I, I mean, if you've ever done groceries before or after a meal, you'll know that it is a very different uh, experience. Indeed, I, I always recommend you do your groceries after a meal, by the way. Even, even things that are, I mean, not even as overt as like a, a, a predominant emotion, even small things like that can, can affect you. I know I have a, a great love for demonstrators. If it has an ink window of some sort, I value it highly. This, which, uh, you know, this Lemmy 2000 does have, it ticks a box. And the individual things that we consider to be deal breakers or deal makers, um, I suppose, which is a phrase that no one ever says, those vary so greatly. For you, it is sparkly translucent. 
among among others. But I, I think that's that's difficult to argue with. I'm not sure what Brian and Dai's are. They're 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 all across the board. Mm, no, I was just looking through my pens and try to think why I buy all of these pens. For me, I think subconsciously I would buy and keep pens that are not too mainstream. In general, I don't really like using things that a lot of people are already using. It makes me feel very you like standing out. <laughs> yes. So you don't Sorry. get FOMO. That's FOMO. Fear of missing out. Yeah. No, no. Well, that's because you GTFK. <laughs> yes, yes. I love them. <laughs> but yeah, the ones that are still in my case are the ones either it's hard to get or a lot of people are not using it enough. Like the underrated pens, like my Hiramakie pilots. I, I, I definitely would identify functionality not being a primary thing for you. You being one of the two people I know that owns a coated giraffe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, that that's that's just because it's a giraffe. Yep. Yeah. That's, for the that's, uniqueness of it. Yes, that's just enough. Yeah. <laughs> Justification for that. Mm. But if you wanna talk about functionality, then this. Get a cocooner. Yes. Well, get four of them. Get four of them. Mm. Uh, what, what about you, Diana? Your collection, you you have made a point to say that you try to keep it under a hundred. So your yours probably spans. Uh, far enough that uh, you know, it's a big enough sample size that mm-hmm. you can identify things that you value more than more than the others but it's also big enough to cloud the, the waters a bit I've I've definitely made purchases that I knew where I was paying excessively perhaps but I mean that is where you get into the problem of worth right if a thing is rare and you know the chances of you getting it again coming onto the market again is not very high then you'll want to or you'll be willing to pay that premium for it and that was certainly the case with the king of pen ebonite with the nagahara king eagle nib which was my one of my recent acquisitions in general i would say i i value or um i only attribute uh, worth to a fountain pen insofar as i can still write with it i mean if if it can't write with it then i, I see no worth of it at all for example, there, a Karis Customs. There are some collectors that would disagree with you. Yeah, uh, I'm yeah, sure there uh, are. That's there are definitely, especially among the vintage crowd, mm-hmm. irrelevant if some of them don't write. Some yeah. Of, yeah. I mean, I, I can admire them, but I wouldn't pay money for them. Yeah. That's what I mean. They have value, and there are people out there who are willing to pay for them, but they're not valuable to me. I would not shell out $5 for a pen that I knew was worth 2000 except for the purpose of on selling it and making some money off it. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have the money than the pen is what I'm getting at. At the same time, I was getting into a conversation online with a friend of mine on Twitter and the topic turned around, where do you think writing experience peaks as far as price goes? For example, is it around 100, around 300? A point beyond which you're really paying for either rarity, the aesthetics, the particular expensive materials. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. I don't think it would be controversial to say that that mark is easily under 500. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say it's 150. Arguably, like, not too difficult to argue that it would be under 200 or 300. Mm. But writing experience is more than just the nib on the the actual paper. You know, the, the the feel in the hand as well contributes the you know i'm sure you could give one of your very cherished and very nice metal sectioned pens to uh, our other guest host max in in the middle of winter and he would hate to write with it i don't know how he would feel about oh sorry i thought that one was a metal section brian was, <laughs> brian was just taking out his omas milord that one is a okay and now he's looking at um, a milord with wood a wooden yeah. Millard, which has a I don't know section. how he would feel about that. It's wood. I thought Max likes wood. I can't remember if he likes wood <laughs> or not. Yeah, I, I think he, he was loath to say until it had uh, finished university or, <laughs> or something. But I mean, I don't want to diminish the views of people who think that it's not worth spending any money over $100 on a pen because, you know, that's what they personally feel. But at the same time, because we're in the fountain pen community and we like pens, all types of pens, I think it's also fair for us to 
say, from our point of view, it's perfectly justifiable to spend thousands of dollars on a pen yeah. as well. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, I guess, how I ultimately feel about this topic of worth. Yeah. And each of us has an individual ceiling, which I've said before is a very fluid ceiling for, for some people. Mine is definitely, my ceiling is what I paid for my Nakaya. And for now. Yeah, for yeah, now. Yeah, which, which is, a, and my, my collection is, we, we've gone into is uh, relatively modest. It's uh, sitting at six, I actually opted out of Conid, which will happen at some point, I suppose. But for the moment is uh, this Lemmy, 2000. This... Uh, nature of worth in the fountain pen community there's always the question of writing experience and uh, arguably you could get like a two dollar rollerball for a similar experience you know if, if you like feedback mechanical pencil also not you know there's uh, a lot of people that like sailors specifically because they say they feel like using mechanical pencils and that writing experience by itself has to be paired with a few other things for, for the, so for every factor that gets added to consideration, the waters get cloudier and cloudier. Uh, and it, if you're talking about it en masse, like as a whole, it's very opaque waters. Right. And especially yeah. when, if we're talking about how a person individually makes that decision, you know, it depends on what else they want to spend their money on. You know, is, is, it, is it worth spending $150 on a pen when that $150 could go towards something else that you value more? And that's a consideration that lots of people have, right? Like 15 yeah. kakunas. Right. Still fits yeah. to GTFK. <laughs> yeah. oh, there you go. Yeah, so recently um, I've been working through finances for a new property purchase. And um, part of this entire process has included me going to multiple interviews with multiple banks and disclosing my asset position, of which they said, you have how many fountain pens worth how much? well, you know, worth's a very subjective thing. If you're talking about how much I paid for them, this is the dollar amount. Yeah. And If you want to talk about worth, well, we're, we're doing a podcast episode. And I can, you know, tune in. Yeah. But the thing that I was reflecting back on was when I made a number of these particular purchases, at that point in time, it gave me great joy to own that particular pen. Some of them gave me great joy to actually use them. I don't use all my pens. But now if I'm weighing up exactly what else do I need to be spending my money on or what else could I free up some funds for, I'm looking at them with a completely different perspective and with different eyes. Mm -hmm. So while once upon a time, yes, I wanted you know, three precious aquamarine pro gear realos, <laughs> now I'll be happy with just two, right? So thought you are going to say one. Okay. <laughs> no, That's why I get too hasty. It does, well, that's because you're freeing help. up space for an amethyst pen, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> oh. The future um, diviner. Yeah. But then there is, uh, I think, Chuck, you mentioned it earlier, the ceiling for which yours is very, very fluid, and I won't hold you to your nakaya nakai uh, ceiling. But um, I set a ceiling many, many years ago when I was actually relatively new in collecting, and it was set by me getting what I probably would still consider my grail pen, which was an AP Marquier pen called the Lotus. And that was the most expensive pen and still is the most expensive pen that I've ever purchased. And I would consider that my ceiling. And I bought that pen back in 2007, I think, 2007. They're one of those pens that you have to apply to get the price for because they won't list the price. They're one of the ones where you have to be on a wait list. <laughs> That you have to be on a wait list or you have to be a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, I was very fortunate when I got this one and it was the first pen that I bought with emotion rather than with any type of rational sense. I made a snap decision on the spot and questioned all my motives afterwards. I didn't give any thought to the question of worth when I bought this pen. It was just, I've got to have it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've got to have it. And you found over time you have the opposite of buyer's regret? I, I don't have buyer's regret, yeah. but I don't think I will ever <laughs> find a pen that, yes, exactly, gives me that type of reaction or gives me that same... Uh, same feeling that I have to drop everything and go out and spend more than that particular pen. There's a surgeon I work with and I made sure to tell all of you when this happened that showed up to work one day uh, and just pulled a pen out of his coat for me because he knew I'd enjoy it. He didn't know what it was and it was a king of pen and it wasn't an ebonite king of pen but it was a king of pen with a king eagle nib. 
And he had no idea what it was. He just knew that he saw the person right with it, needed it, purchased it. And then the very next day when he saw me, all he could say was, my wife's going to be furious. Uh, immediate buyer's regret. There's a certain nature to that because it's not, you know, uh, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, how it's not a purely logical choice. Uh, in, in fact, there's... Uh, a book that I love, which is not my recommendation, but it is called The Rational Animal, and it is written by two psychology professors from the University of Columbia, Texas, I think. And they talk about, in part of the book, they talk about how there's a lot of evidence that humans are not rational, and what we are much better at doing is acting and then rationalizing after that we, after we've made the decision already. That hurts. Yeah. So true, though. Yeah. Um, in that we are capable of rational action, but we cannot do that every day at every decision because we burn ourselves out. So the, there's a lot of that involved in it, in that you cannot logically process all of these a lot of the times, it, particularly if it's something that you're staying in because you feel strongly about it. Like, for example, if you felt strongly enough about something to make a podcast about it, you're not going to be voting with your head. Uh, you're you're voting with your heart, I suppose. Gut, gut, yeah. Gut. <laughs> no feeling is Bowels. inside your brain as well. I so. know. I was, that's why I sighed. <laughs> I said gut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the nervous system is all over your body, so it is. You feel with that's your whole body. You, you, I, yeah. I'm definitely uh, voting with the back of my knee. <laughs> so that that ceiling, the most money you would spend on a fountain pen. For for me, not to throw numbers out there, but. That Nakaya is, I haven't really even approached, I don't think I've come within two thirds of it since. And there's been diminishing desire uh, since, since that acquisition. And it's been, my, my hard cap is a Nakaya, Nakai. You can look up the numbers yourself. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you. Sharon has obliquely, and she's mentioned hers. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, and I will say that I have come close to that particular one. It was a Nakaya that I came close to my ceiling with. I think I may have been about two-thirds of the way to my ceiling with a Nakaya purchase that I made for myself about three years ago. Brian, Di, what about your personal um, ceilings? Ceilings. My most expensive fountain pen purchase was also a Nakaya, and it's the it's the one that's completely covered in rod. In I can't remember what it's called. Mine was so also a, covered in rod. No, it's the one Sharon got for me when she was in Japan. I think it was Singapore. like Singapore. In Singapore, from Aesthetic Bay. The long Bay. piccolo. The long piccolo, which is entirely covered with rod. It's like yes. my chopstick. I don't see any value in going above that price, to be honest. I really wanted that one because I, I love the Raden and yeah. it was in a it was in a body which I particularly like, the long piccolo from Nakaya. But my other pens that I adore tend to be a third of that price in general. And um, I'm very comfortable in sticking that range. My ceiling currently is the giraffe. Actually. The giraffe? Yeah. That's okay. the most expensive pen that I actually own. That's I, more than an Omas. I was going to say that's yeah. that's not the one that I thought wow. was your ceiling. But I got the Omas at a very good price, so yeah. it's not. It's worth more than what I actually paid for. Mm. I think at the time. Currently, it's that, but I'm prepared to get my first Nakaya maybe in two years, three years time, and that would cost. I don't know how much is that. Which one are uh, you wave crest. At? The wave. Whoa. Yeah. So, so yes. you're telling you're telling me you're due for a renovation. You're about to raise your ceiling. Yes, a very high ceiling. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's still a far way. But normally, I wouldn't go past. I'm gonna put a number. Okay. Eight hundred. Okay. Is my normal range. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose like, mine I would. I suppose mine would sit around there as well. Uh, well, let, let's. Now that we're we're talking about that, let's let's uh, discuss the the actual like market. What would you consider a a good deal when you're buying and selling fountain pens? There's a handy metric that exists in the musician community when we're talking about first and second hand pens. Uh, Chuck, sorry, Chuck, Chuck, sorry, we just okay. we just, have, we just to have to interrupt because we um, googled we no. googled this. Um, <laughs> Crest. Wave crest. Uh, go ahead. Nakaya pen that Brian was talking about. I told you I can't stand the heat, so. And my jaw just dropped. Open yeah, really it's in high. it's in the um, quintet. 
quint digits? It's in the five digits. There are five digits. <laughs> there are five digits, and it's in US dollars. I've got, I've got the um, approval of my wife, so <laughs> that's fine. Oh. I mean, that's, that's a fundamental part of this whole thing. So yeah, high ceiling, huge renovation. That's why I take. It's just like you're going to outer space. Just one. one, It's basically an atrium. It's Burj Khalifa. It's it's basically an atrium. So what's your space? Two years. Mm, Three years. Okay. Ten. Okay. (laughs) We'll see. So. Uh, I was mentioning before, there's like a metric in the buying and selling of instruments, at least with guitars, in that as soon as something is secondhand, you're going to take 30% of what a brand new one is off it. And then it's 10%. uh, You you take off it every year until it hits half price. And that's if it's in a good condition. If it's in a bad condition, it deteriorates further. Wouldn't it depend on the rarity of the item to be Correct as well. So if it's still in production, I, for example, have a an out-of-production limited run bass guitar that I'm still selling. I'm listing it virtually the 500 down from the price that it was. And it's not a cheap guitar, but I've still had a bunch of people very interested in it because they only made it for four or yeah. five years and it is ridiculously over-engineered, you know? So the best investment for a pen is the one that is rare, then. (laughs) When I think about what constitutes a good deal, I guess I tend to think more generally good deal to most fountain pen users rather than me specifically, because I think that's something very... We get into very subjective um, valuations, as we did before. And that's where you start thinking about what pens are are good deals when they're new, what pens are a good deal when they become secondhand. Like Mont Blancs are pens that... I would probably never buy new if I could help it <laughs> because there's so many of them in the secondhand market in very good condition and they're virtually indistinguishable from the new ones and you can Again, get them at a mu- and and you can get them for a very good price. The benefit of getting it new is that you have the warranty attached to it but with a brand like Mont Blanc, I think the issues with having to get it repaired are probably much more much less likely than with other brands, say with a Twisby. So, yeah, I think it's a little bit different whether you're talking about new pens or old pens. Yeah, and uh, I mean, some some pens right off the bat, brand new are going to be a great deal. Um, or a terrible deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, I mean, is part of, part of why I went with the 2000, and I've talked with uh, Sharon about this, that I think that the L2K is pretty phenomenal as far as you know, pound for pound. Mm-hmm. If you want a great writing experience, a super durable pen, and it's made out of um, riot shield material. Yeah, yeah, and like <laughs> you know, just like great, great little things like that. It's a piston filler, and it's mm-hmm. got an ink window. I think for the price point, how much did you say it was, Sharon? Good deal would be anything less than one hundred and seventy dollars AUD, which is what one hundred and forty something USD. Yeah, one hundred and forty USD. Um, but you can get them under two hundred AUD. So one. 160 USD and like maybe a little more than that if you're getting a brick and mortar and I mean even if you were to pay that it would still be very worth it it's it's like a solid performer when the question of worth came up this was the first pen that came to mind I think when you talk about you know especially when you're trying to justify to other people what do you consider a good deal for a pen that's when there's a lot of overlap with what's a good recommendation like Yolami Safari, that's the, one of the most frequently recommended piston Kukuno. fillers and gold nibbed pens. Exactly, and the Kakuno. And when they talk about at a $40 range, um, why is the Eco so highly regarded? Because it's considered a fairly good deal, you know, for the amount of the fact the, that it's a piston filler, yeah. for the fact that you can put so much ink into it and um, Actually, it's a good nib. Right, really yeah. well. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a combination of features that makes it appealing at a low price point. And the, the Lamy 2000 is sort of like that at a mid to higher price point. And that's, I mean, brand new what a good deal is. And then mm-hmm. when you take the secondhand market into uh, Factor, I, I think some people are a little more cavalier about it than others. I'm, I'm a big just giver of mm. things. If I have no use for it and I want to get rid of it, I will often just find a person to give it to. I've given away clothes, sneakers, yeah, like a, a whole a whole bunch of things. Uh, because for me, I've already obtained the joy that I was gonna that I purchased with that money. <laughs> so I get more joy out of gifting. <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the joy of giving. Yeah, and so for for some people, they're looking at getting the money back that they or as much as they can back from that because there is going to be an additional uh, purchase and so that's more uh, joy for them in in that case i know that diana and sharon you both 
uh, quite often list secondhand pens um, to further disseminate into the fountain pens groups. Yeah. And you know, your your both of your prices are quite good. Yeah. yeah. So um, when I buy a pen, I have a few very specific criteria. Mainly, does it make me wow? Like, do I look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> I want that. And do I see that same reaction from other people? Does it bring like a little smile on their face? Does it cheer them up a little bit? And then I look at the pricing. Can I get something similar in this particular price range? Or is this a very good value for money? And then I'll do my research as to where should I be getting this particular pen. And where possible, I try and get ones which are a little bit more scarce or not as commonly seen because I do sell a lot. I yeah. go through phases where <laughs> I was really into one particular pen and it brought me a lot of joy when I bought it. Mm. And then maybe that joy can be spread around to other people when I sell it. I usually sell at the same price that I get it for. Yeah. Um, uh, you're a great resource for people, particularly with an FPO, for getting interesting pens at like, uh, and some that are may not, you know, maybe not easily accessible mm. at like a, a fair price point. Um, Sharon's often on sales her pens at very close to purchase price because she keeps her pens mint. Yeah. And because she buys pens buy with backups. no intention of, yeah, yeah. she buys backups pens which she doesn't use. Whereas I use all my pens because I, I tend not to have any backups unless they're different nibs. And when I on sale, I usually take off 20 to 30%, mm. like you said. I don't keep boxes or cases. <laughs> so yeah. when I on sell things, it's very it's similar, if not if not lower. Yeah. Um, well, when I on sell stuff that I've used, I mark how used it's been mm. and it's a 20, 30% yeah. Yeah. that I take off from purchase price as well, yeah. I think another thing to consider when we think about what's a good deal, whether it's good value, is what is the likelihood that something goes wrong? Because when, especially when you buy vintage pens, Sometimes you just don't know what could go wrong. V. No, (laughs) we can say that too. But also, especially with vintage pens, that's why sometimes we don't know how to price vintage pens or what's a reasonable price, what's a reasonable amount to pay for a vintage pen because we don't know what what it's been through and what could conceivably happen to it in the future because getting it repaired is expensive. So that's another thing that can make it difficult to determine value. That's kind of like a counterweight factor to the rarity aspect that comes with the vintage nature Mm. of it. So it's like those two things are pushing and pulling against each other. And you can have condition in particular, you can have a model that's quite rare in a poor condition and it'll drop significantly. The one one that I find really interesting is with the Parker Vacumatics. Uh, A Maxima that has a single jewel will be very affordable and a Maxima with a double jewel is phenomenal. Is a single jewel because it's dropped jewel? So because there's two caps, some models only have it on the cap and some have it on the blind cap as well. Mm And the ones that are double jeweled are significantly more. There's so many cases in like any of the online RPGs where markets just fluctuate like crazy over an an aesthetic thing, which doesn't add to any functionality. Well, not to the extent that it's it's priced. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's uh, an interesting one to me. And it's a combination of rarity and aesthetic that outpaces usually the cost of the pen at least. Right, because you can imagine when they were new, the variation in price would not be so great. And now maybe it's like a 40% um, difference between yeah. a single jewel and a two jewel. How about that um, <laughs> demonstrator Mont Blanc 149? Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that one. No? No, I haven't seen it in real life. It's kind of ugly because it, it has looks that fake. glue. It doesn't look like a Mont Blanc. If it's but clear, how is it a Mont Blanc? The cost <laughs> of that. Yeah. And... The, the definitely with collectors comes in the, the bragging rights factor. And, <laughs> yeah, because you know. collecting, um, collecting depends on if you're collecting for yourself or if yeah. you're collecting. It's a social activity, right? Hey, I got this one. <laughs> and how you present yourself to that, to that, in that social aspect. Um, we, we talk a lot about deals and this, this brings us to brick and mortar stores. And this is an interesting topic, particularly here in Australia, I think. More so than if you were talking about a brick and mortar in a market like Japan or America. In Australia, uh, as anybody that has bought anything online knows, is that if you're going to buy something online in Australia, even with shipping, you're probably going to pay less. But focusing on that entirely means you're buying blind. 
for a lot of it. So with a brick and mortar store, what do they offer to you specifically? Let's uh, let's go to you, Sharon. This is an interesting topic because you've gone straight over to Japan to visit a brick and mortar store. Yes. So I I do like shopping brick and mortar. Uh, I like being able to see a pen in person, being able to uh, touch it, feel it, (laughs) see the little nuances of it. Um, For instance, like Brian has this celluloid platinum 3776 the koi yep. and the first time i saw a photo of it it looked absolutely fantastic and i thought you know what <laughs> i really like want this salt pen. on my very fresh wound <laughs> not but, so fresh but <laughs> but when i went in store and saw this particular pen i noticed that there was a very obvious seam on it mm. and that's not something that comes out through a lot of uh, pictures and yep. that's only something that you can really notice. you can hide that really well in yeah. the picture yeah. you, mm. it's only something that you'd notice when you handle it in person some and pens so. photograph really well yeah and photogenic some, pens and some gorgeous pens have no photogenic nature absolutely um the uh most recent pelican m805 deep ocean is it deep ocean ocean swirl ocean, ocean swirl, swirl. <laughs> can i say i was disappointed when i got mine because in the photos it looked fantastic but in real life it didn't have as much of the depth as um, you would have expected. So in general, where possible, I like to shop at a brick and mortar. Now, yes, I have flown to Japan specifically to go visit certain brick and mortar stores. And I have gone to Singapore to go visit Aesthetic Bay because they have certain limited editions that you just can't find elsewhere. But if we're talking about the Australian market, I think we are very starved for choice. And our brick and mortar stores are not offering the allures that a lot of the foreign brick and mortar stores are offering so we don't have the special editions we don't have the unique things that many other uh, countries may have we do have a selection of pens you do get to try them out you can compare them for size but other than that there's store exclusives there are no store exclusives there i mean it's good to drop off at a store to say hi to some people who might be interested in pens there every now and then and to pick up a bottle of ink Nowadays, that's pretty much all I do. I did shop a lot at brick and mortar in Australia, but I found the experience severely lacking, especially in later years, more recent years. I found the experience at some of the larger pen stores in Australia to be quite disappointing. Particularly in an internet age. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that, that sentence made me feel really old. Um, <laughs> particularly in an internet age, yes. there's no bottlenecking of information at right. those stores that there used to be. You can do research. Yeah. Uh, and often... You can, be better, you, you can be, be better, better learned than the people exactly. in the store. On that particular information point, uh, I went into a store to pick up a Graf von Faber-Castell or to have a look at a Graf von Faber-Castell classic range in a wood finish. And I own a Pernambuco Graf von Faber-Castell classic pen. The wood is slightly more red than the one that uh, this particular store had in stock. And I was told at this particular store that the one I had was a fake because they wanted to sell me the one that they had on display. I have internet just like everyone else (laughs) and trash bagging my collection or my taste or whatever it was that I had purchased is one I find very disrespectful and not something that I would expect to get especially when I'm going into a store and paying a stupid premium like stupid on on the nature of uh, photogenic pens I uh, have my Nakaya Nakai in shoe in the polished (laughs) shoe uh, which is a, a beautiful red originally some of you may know this. I have a, a sickness, which uh, causes me to... An obsession. Yeah, it, it causes me to seek out things that are golden yellow in nature. It's not an official thing. It's not in the DSM-4, but, um, you know, expect it. Uh, I bought the Nanohana Iro of the Nakai first, which in pictures, mm. particularly in the later edition, it shows up as a beautiful golden yellow. In person, still gorgeous. But mustard. Very mustard. Mm. Very mustard. And not like American mustard, like a, like a, a Dijon, you know? <laughs> Baby poo. Yeah. And I still enjoyed it. And I kind of, I, you know that thing where you get something you're not quite happy with and you're like, I can learn to love this. And then a week later, you're like, no. <laughs> so I ended up with polished shoe sent back over to me and is gorgeous. Would not exchange for anything. But that is a case in which a brick and mortar could have served me amazingly. Yeah. Um, 
It was interesting listening to Sharon's interview with Costa and David, the guys in Melbourne, and finding out that they actually met at a fountain pen store. And I think that's what, Chuck, you were talking about. I mean, in in the past, that's where people congregated and met each other (laughs) as people who like fountain pens. And that's where we come to know each other. And that's where you you see the most pens. But now, especially now we have um, these online groups and... From the online groups, we have organised in-person meetings where we can see each other's collections and try each other's pens. It means that, you know, I can... Sharon probably has a better range than a lot of these stores. 100 of them. <laughs> yeah, just one person. Also you. Yeah. yeah. Like, between us, we probably can cover a lot of different brands. Brian on hand. Brian has no. the weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. But Brian on hand, there's definitely a wider That's range benefits there. off too. Yeah. yeah. There's... Um, the one, one of the stores, who, one of the brick and mortar stores, which is not specifically pens, but Kinokuria in Sydney, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites in general, you definitely have more in your penvelope than is available there. Mm. Yeah, so I think if you're saying the value of a f- brick and mortar store, specifically, or oh, the, the best thing you get out of a brick and mortar store is the opportunity to try the pens yourself. I agree with Sharon that, you know, a lot of the stores in Australia just aren't really cutting it. They don't cut the mustard. Right, which is quite sad. (laughs) Yeah. Inks, you've mentioned, Sharon, and I think are the primary thing that I I do in a brick and mortar is that I can visually with my own eyes verify what that's going to look like. Because, you know, you don't have to be a designer struggling with CMYK and RGB to know that colors look different when they're photographed. I, there, there are photos that, that I think of any, anything in general will look great on my phone and then not on my computer. There's a, a difference in screen. If you're talking about something that you're going to have to hold and look at every day and, you know, leave marks out, you're going to want to confirm with your own eyes. And that's really where I'm like, the premium for this is worth it. For the pen, I'm not sure. There are some types of pens that maybe it's safer to buy online without even going to the brick and mortar in terms of color. If it's flat colored, like just plain colored, I mm-hmm. think it's pretty safe to assume that it might or most likely come in that yeah. color. But things like Arco, where each pen has a different, slightly different pattern or yeah. something like that, then it's And that's really, and arc, especially celluloid, it's really hard to photograph. Yeah. Yeah. When I got the Golden Pearl, I had like photos of Golden Pearl Vacuumatics. Some are the most bland in the world, and some are like when I got it, I you know, and held it up to the sunlight, you know, because did you cry? Oh, yeah, it was uh, truly beautiful. It is an experience that could not have been like that was a gamble that could have gone poorly, but I think, um. We're pretty fortunate in that outside the brick and mortar stores in Australia, a lot of the online only local businesses are very engaged in the community. And that's that's the reason why I'm drawn to them. I made my first ever purchase from Pen Classics New Zealand, not quite local, although New Zealand is part of Australia. uh, I met my I made my first purchase from Pen Classics New Zealand recently because I had actually met Renee in person and he's a fabulous guy and just as genuine as he seems online like um, I think he went out of his way to help me get a pen that I was desperate for at the time and I had massive FOMO but he's a great part of the community as well he contributes to here's what's coming up new here's what's he here's what he's getting in ink swab samples um, he tries to make things easy for people who are having a hard time with other retailers for instance and that just makes me want to support um, local businesses when they are that engaged so I haven't made my first desk bandit uh, oh, order yet? It's I, really good. I will just for the Tim Tams. That's the reason why I want to get. <laughs> I want to make an order so that I get a Tim Tam. Like <laughs> it makes you so happy. I mean, it it doesn't add really much to the order, but just looking at it makes you happy. No, and it's just that that it appeared at all. Exactly. Like even it's any, so thoughtful. Anybody that's ordered from Goulet yeah, knows that you're going to get a lollipop. It's an extra little touch. Yeah, it's right. just a, a minor thing. Often, like a little handwritten note, which if I'm buying from someone that does fountain pens is nice. A lot of the people that you send your nibs off to work on will send you back handwritten notes. That's great. I Pendleton Brown does that. got a Japanese fan when I was buying my um, pilot the other day from a Japanese eBay retailer. I find that really cute. 
Well, there are definitely some benefits to um, supporting your uh, your brick and mortys, um, which uh, I'm I'm really ashamed I didn't think of earlier. Um, could have called it that. The whole episode would have been fun. It's an odd subject for for Australia. Our general market tends to price things up so high that they need to provide a service that is. It's not worth it. It's crazy it's not worth high. It. They have to it's provide a crazy it. high service. It's not worth service. buying yeah. a pen. Sometimes it's a, it's a for double the price. Percent. Yeah. Uh, for double the price, mm. if they're going to tell me my other one's fake. <laughs> that is the opposite I've, of good. I've got good a real service. chip on yeah. my shoulder for that. <laughs> that is the opposite of good. I think that's our message. Brick and yeah. Morton needs to step it up. <laughs> yeah. But Renee, James, Desk Bandit, all you guys, we love you. <laughs> so. Let's, let's, let's wrap it up with uh, some recommendations. So we're going to recommend some things which don't have to be pen-related, might be pen-related, uh, whichever we feel like uh, just before we finish. Sharon, would you like to go first? Yep. So uh, I'm about to move very soon. So at the moment I am doing all sorts of Pinterest paging, pinning, pinning? Is that what it's called? Pinning of ideal dream bedrooms, living rooms, because I'm looking at redecorating for my new place. And um, I came across this YouTube channel called Mr. Kate. And I really, really enjoy it. They do um, home renos, essentially. They do home renos in almost like a short 20 minute documentary style. But the girl, Kate, she is just such a character, very bubbly, um, comes with really good recommendations and really interesting takes on certain things. So, yeah, Mr. Kate, YouTube channel. Great stuff. Brian, would you like to go next? Guess what I'm going to recommend? Tim Tams. No. Kakunos. So, um, yes, in the office, we tried brewing before beer. Now we have moved on. Uh, now we are curing meats. <laughs> so that would be my recommendation. Try to cure your own pancetta. It's very simple to do. You can look up recipes online and um, it only takes a month to make uh, for a two kilo piece of pork belly. Yeah. And I've been enjoying it. It tastes great. I'll expect some at my housewarming. When is it? Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes, we'll, that yeah, I will bring. Yeah, we'll we'll announce it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll probably film the maybe not the next one, but maybe yeah, yeah. soon. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, a band. I'll go band album, and if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, just one song. The band is called uh, Wolfpack. Uh, v u l f p e c k. I assume it's Wolfpack. They are a Michigan-based band, a phenomenal rhythm section, uh, and as a bassist, I must bow down to it. The album is called Mr. Finish Line, uh, but if you only need to listen to one song, I recommend the song Business Casual by Wolfpack. Great stuff. Like, re re really enjoyable, fun, kind of like if there was an up-to-date, still-cool Jamiroquai. That's hard to imagine. That's where I'm going to leave it. Okay. Uh, Diana, do you want to close out our recommendations? Gosh, thinking a lot about my wardrobe right now. <laughs> Um, since that's been occupying my thoughts, so I thought I'd give two recommendations on two ends of the budget spectrum. One is, I'm looking at my nails. I haven't done my nails in so long, and recently I've started painting them again. And um, it's my favourite polish from YSL. It's called um, Brun Modern, which is discontinued, and it's this very dark... Yamabuda? No, not, not Yamabuda. It's a very Steeper. dark brownie Yamaguri. black um, yeah and in the summer it's great on your toes and on the other end of the spectrum is Carl Cap. Carl Cap is a local Australian fashion line I know Carl and I know his partner Aki they do great personalized service they do alterations they design really classic women's wear and they're my go-to when I need like formal wear or something for a wedding or um, a special party they now sell through matches fashion but they also have an online store that you can have a look at and um, if you're in Australia go and check them out they're on Oxford Street in Paddington you know a lot of people say um, YSL but no one ever asks how YSL um, and with that, guys, uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on mic officially again, uh, Fearless Leader. Thanks. 
thank you very much, Brian. Uh, I look forward to the day that uh, you recommend something normal, specific, something uh, attainable, and doesn't require us to buy a smokehouse. Mm. No, it doesn't require a smokehouse. <laughs> it requires a fridge. That's it. So. I like that you recommend us pathways. You're like <laughs> travel, how to improve travel ourselves. This. I know. Travel this. Life's, life's too short. Yeah. Uh, Cure some meat. Uh, <laughs> Thank you uh, once again, Sharon. <laughs> no worries. Uh, and uh, my name is Chuck Swantano. Until next time, listeners, ink well. Future episodes of this podcast can be found at the Nib section and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto iTunes, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us uh, on the Nib section Facebook page or at the Nib section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pants Oceania. Our producers this episode were Diana Dai, Chucks Montano, Sharon Zah, Patrick Antolovich, and Denise Tang. Recording and editing was done by Patrick Antolovich and Denise Tang. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>